Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining the podcast today is Portfolio Manager Hugo Lavallee. For Canadian investors, Hugo manages Fidelity Canadian Opportunities Fund, Fidelity Greater Canada Fund, and Fidelity Climate Leadership Fund. Today, Hugo discusses the extent to which he hears recession concerns within corporations and how much these concerns might bleed into consumer stocks. Hugo explains to host Pamela Ritchie that markets are unusual right now because returns are highly concentrated, as is the case with the S&P 500. He says that as a contrarian investor, although his funds have over 100 holdings, he has a higher concentration with the top 10 to 20 stocks. So his strategy is to see what has been left behind, especially in the Greater Canada Fund. Hugo discusses how Fidelity engages in discussions with companies to encourage them to pivot business models to accommodate an economic environment with higher interest rates. He says companies need to focus on profitability and returning value to shareholders, especially considering they are competing against a risk-free rate of 5%. This episode was recorded on June 7th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Okay, so let's let's get right into this. We've seen you pop up in various marketing. Um, you've been making appearances in in media, so I, I feel like I've seen you, even though I haven't seen you in a while. Um, and now there's an ETF. Tell tell us a little bit about this and how it came about ultimately to bring in more people to invest in the funds that you manage. Absolutely. So anytime we can break down a, a barrier for somebody to say no to Fidelity, it's it's a great day, right? So we've been working on this for a little while, and we have uh, four funds: uh, Greater Canada, King Large Cap, uh, Global Innovators, and Chris and Connors uh, Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund. So it's new to us. Fidelity's made it really seamless on the back end. It just goes in the same pool of money as uh, for me with the Greater Canada Fund. We just launched um, end of May, May 25th, I think. And we're getting some momentum every day now. We're getting a little bit of money uh, in on the ETF. So it's good because I think we're addressing a need for some of our uh, subset of our clients, uh, maybe discretionary brokers, for example. Uh, some of them might only do ETFs. So um, it's good. Gives us another uh, reason for people to buy Fidelity. And it's really easy for us on the back end as portfolio managers. So it's great. And we've had more increased conversation with some of our clients on that. So. I'm excited. It's just another avenue for people to own uh, some of uh, Greater Canada, some of other uh, other of our funds. It's been a volatile and fascinating and wild first half of the year. It really, it really has lots of unexpected pieces. But the volatility has been there in certain areas. In other places, it's kind of gone straight, uh, just horizontally. Tell us a little bit about the high vol in certain areas, the, the volatility, ultimately what you're looking to address in these markets. What, what do you think of the market environment right now? Yeah, it's an interesting market because it's, it's, it's a little bit unusual because that, that, the returns are so concentrated, right? It's almost like 99-ish that the returns are concentrated at the top. I'm talking about the S&P 500, right? So I think like 10 or 15, maybe 20 stocks are leading the way. And if you exclude those stocks and the returns, I think are negative. 
for the S&P 500 year to date. So, you know, as a contrarian investor, it's not like I'm chasing more of the top, you know, 10 or 20 winners. If anything, the ones that I do own, I'm probably trimming on the margin or I'm definitely not doing any more work. I'm, I'm looking at what's been left behind, right? What is looking cyclically depressed. So that's one thing that I'm doing in the portfolios, especially in Greater Canada, is that the margin, what's been working, because there's so few of them, right? The market's concentrating because because growth is so tough to get that whatever is growing, it seems disconnected from the overall economy. It's getting a higher and higher multiple, right? So you're seeing multiple expansion and what is still growing because there's so few of them. So that, I mean, I, I think I lived through that moment also at Fidelity in 07, 08. So at the margin, that that's less interesting to me. And I want to focus on what's in the hole, what's looking bad, you know, what doesn't sound very good because eventually that's where the relative value will be. So that's what I'm working on. There are those that have seen what's gone on in the market and say, actually, stocks, a lot of stocks have just already been beaten down and looked through the recession. They're already sort of priced for a recession. Um, What do you think about these calls, either for or against a recession? Uh, What do you see in the market in terms of valuations? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think what's interesting and what's changed over, say, a year ago or even six months ago is uh, some sectors are talking about recessions on the conference calls, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, Pamela, you talked on the onset of, you know, Canada's GDP growth, and and it's true, but also I think unemployment and GDP, they're like the two lagging indicators, right? So one thing that we like to look at is, you know, our own opinions and leading indicators, but also what companies are saying on the conference calls. And for some sectors, like U.S. transportation. And I think more and more you can say that about U.S. consumer. There's some sets that are really struggling, right? You saw the dollar stores in the U.S. had really tough quarters. One thing I've been really working here today is U.S. transportation. Uh, we're facing a destocking in the United States um, generally. You know, Walmart, Target, Nike, Foot Locker, whatever, there's too much stuff. And because of that, the destocking is really hurting U.S. transportation stocks. So on a relative basis, they look really good, especially, like I said earlier, as these 10 or 15 other stocks, their P multiples go up every day. There's U.S. transportation like rails are looking really more attractive on a relative basis. So it's always tricky when you're in in this moment. You never know how much worse it can get. But the fact that the companies are already talking on their conference calls, that things are difficult, is definitely an area that I want to lean in. On the Canadian economy, more specifically, you know, we just had another uh, re- uh, um, rise in rate by a quarter point this morning. I think it's going to be tricky for the Canadian consumer. Unfortunately, a lot, a lot of Canadians have debt. I think we're up to a third of Canadians now have outstanding balances on their credit card. I think I was reading that earlier today. We have credit card debt. I think I just want to take it a little bit more slow on the Canadian side. Um, let the, the this historical rise in rates play out. We know that as Canadians, everybody's going to rate reset over five years on their mortgages, right? So that's a, a headwind that we have. So I just want to let that go through a little bit. So I would say, as a general comment, my funds, they're a little bit like Canada light. Uh, definitely on the financial side, on the cyclical side, a lot of stuff that was really good during COVID, like in consumer discretionaries, were very light there. And we're just letting that play out and focusing on maybe other sectors that are already seeing a lot of pain, like U.S. transportation and maybe a little bit more of a U.S. Uh, consumer. What, do you, what is U.S. transportation versus Canada? I mean, there's actually kind of some different stories going on there. What, can you give us a bit of a comparison? Well, yeah. So if you just compare, for example, um, King Rails with U.S. Rails, the U.S. Rails, things have been tougher. Uh, they lost share during COVID. 
there's, you know, the U.S., if you look at East Coast U.S., for example, market, the distances are, are more concentrated. So they lost share to trucking, right? Because Walmart needed every bike they could get their hand on, they would sell right away. So trucking is faster, but trucking is more expensive, right? So rail is about 35% cheaper than trucking. They also have service issues. But we know what are the three things we do know, the kind of the certainty over the medium to long run, their cost winners, rail versus trucking, 35% cheaper. Their carbon winners, 75% less carbon. And also their onshoring winners. So, you know, they're kind of addressing decarbonization, lower costs, right? And they're getting their service back on track. So it's a little bit different in Canada because we're more long haul bulk commodity. Um, so uh, the, the, those cyclical dynamics have been very, very difficult for the U.S. rails. We haven't seen them as acute in Canadian railroads. So I don't think I've ever owned a U.S. railroad, uh, but I do now. And I think they're really interesting relative to the market. Uh, they're beaten down, and we'll see. I mean, they might get more beaten down, uh, but my inclination would be to leave some room to, you know, potentially lean in more. But uh, to have a sector, and there's some, um, it's not just U.S. rails, it's everything interconnected to that, like intermodal, railroad, uh, like spare parts, like locomotives, uh, freight, uh, brakes. There's all these other things to look at. It's a very broad sector. That's why Pam, right? I, Pamela, I always say it's a market of stocks, not a stock market. There's all these other derivatives we can look at, but that's what I'm really, really focused on. It, it, no, it is it's so interesting just to kind of hear the comparison because they have been slightly different stories, even though, you know, there's a lot to compare there. So And the performance have been, yeah, and the performance have been different, right? The Canadian rails have done better than the U.S. rails, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So, so we got past the debt ceiling. That's that's one thing that's kind of in the rearview mirror, which is which is fine. Again, I'll, I'll I just want to get one more question in on sort of broadly our thoughts on liquidity um, areas of concern. Is is this something that we need to listen to, or in fact, does it maybe provide some opportunities for you? Because there are sort of some nails being bitten right now out there. There's some nerves for sure. I'm, I'm very happy we don't have to talk about the debt ceiling, right? Yay. When we're doing our, our <laughs> show, we're looking at debates like, oh, God, I hope I don't have to talk about that. <laughs> Look, I think for me, honestly, like the macro is affecting the micro. We just had a call like at 10 o'clock today. We spent an hour with a neat little company, neat little business, industrial business, specialty chemical. But they have some debt, right? And they issued debt at a 5% coupon, but now the yield to maturity is 95 So the cost of capital is change. I think that's really important to kind of mention that it's having some effect in the in the markets, right? Almost a almost ex, a year exactly to the month after we started raising rates aggressively, you had regional banks in the U.S. Uh, go upside down and be wiped out, right? So, but I think holistically for the whole stock market, what it means is the cost of capital has changed, and that's what one one thing that we're digging into the micro is understanding that the world's changed. It's not free money anymore. Like the company we're looking at, it looks interesting, looks in the hole, but there's also debt, there's the balance sheet. So we have to think about that, that we didn't really have to think as much a year ago because the money was free. So now it's really should be good for us on the stock picking, differentiating between good and bad companies that'll make it, companies that won't make it. Also, frankly, you know, sometimes we do some soft push, you know, Pamela, we're not the company that's going to try to end up in the newspapers and do activism, but there's a lot of soft push at Fidelity. Maybe through lunch or dinners or engagement with board, board, you know, one on one board meetings or engagement with boards that, hey, the world's changed. You need to pivot a little bit your business model. The area of free money's gone. 
you know, you were losing a ton of EBITDA and growing your revenue as fast as possible. And there's one top 10 company I own that I kind of think about that right now. When I say that, it's like, no, you need to make profit. You need to return money to shareholder. You're competing against a risk-free rate. That's four and a half, five percent, whatever. People are not going to tolerate no returns. And so kind of having that soft push, because there are some cheap stocks out there, but we also sometimes in the background try to be kind and soft push, you know, kind of leading them in a different direction that maybe you need to pivot your strategy a little bit. And I think you'll get a better response from the stock market. So when you ask how the world's changed and, you know, how things are changing, I think we're trying to explain to companies, too, that the world's changed. You're competing against a 5% risk-free rate. Um, what can you do, you know, to kind of change a little bit? Of, we saw with Meta, right? Meta is an unbelievable example. They're spending like a gazillion dollars on in a metaverse, the product was poor, getting no response. Stock was really cheap. And, you know, the stock has more than doubled since last October, November, when they kind of pivoted what they could control as a company. So I'm a big fan of what what can the company control, what the controllables that you can do. And we're trying to encourage all of our companies that we own to kind of think about that. And it's very cute for some companies to think about that. We try to educate them. Okay, so tell us uh, a little bit about what you've seen before in this in this narrowness of breadth. This is a big conversation, the issue of breadth. Does it? What does it mean for you? I mean, it, it is. Some people are comparing it certainly to the 1990s or the end of the 1990s. At the same time, are, are areas of tech of interest to you? I mean, we are moving towards this transition. It's a new world. It's a digital world. Are there are there still areas that? perhaps are of interest to you in there, but maybe smaller cap? Yeah, absolutely. There's always going to be some tech stocks I find interesting, and there's some that I own, and I think there's some payment companies, and there's other things. Like, there's so many tech stocks, and I, I do consider it a circle of confidence. I think my earlier comments were more to those 10 or 15 names, and I don't want to name them because maybe I'm trading them, but the, the 10 or 15 names that are leading the stock market, that concentration of return is extremely rare uh, historically. It, it could be it could be like 99 where it's going to keep going another six months or whatever. And maybe it'll be a little bit more difficult on the margin for a country investor like me. But, you know, I kind of we saw that in 07, 08, too. Like in 07, we were still in Boston. Right. And I remember like our tech analysts at Fidelity at FMR back then and some of the PMs, the American PMs were saying, you know, tech stocks are only going to get more expensive because that's where the growth is and there's no more growth anywhere else. So it's basically a couple of a few tech stocks and commodities, right, like Potash, right at the time, right, which had good earnings revision. And uh, my only comment would be that this it's going to keep going until it doesn't, because in it, eventually what happens is either the recession ends up affecting everybody like it did in 08. So the, the recession will will affect them as well. But they're coming up from a much higher relative valuation versus, say, you know, U.S. transportation, which I was talking about earlier. They're already at the press valuation. So on a relative basis, they'll, they'll look a lot less bad once the fundamental or the recession has caught up to them. Or the rest of the stuff starts looking better cyclically. And on a relative basis, uh, the cyclical stuff that looked cheaper starts getting just marginally better. So the returns will be there. So, you know, I'm kind of... In the fund, you're always trying to be everywhere and adjust weights. And that's what I'm doing. I'm adjusting the weights, right? Whatever I own that's been going up here to date, and some of it's been going almost per, you know, perpendicular, like going straight up. It looks like a hockey stick. You know, at the margin, less interesting and focusing on, hey, the stuff that's down and out. Because 
either the world's going to get better or the world's going to get worse. And if the world is going to get worse, it's also affect the high flying, but they, they, they're going to start a much higher valuation. So I'm just less interested there. So, I mean, contrarian in certain industries, and I know, I know that you'll say it's a, it's a market of stocks and not, not so much the stock market. That said, though, there have been some really out of favor areas. And actually, energy has been one of them because uh, it did well last year, basically. It's had its own story. We've seen the oil price move around a bit in recent days. Is there anything that's of interest to you in terms of themes within the energy space? Yeah, so here are my two thoughts on energy. I think nat gas is is down and out. And as a general comment, I'm a little bit more interested in nat gas stocks. I think the stocks still have a lot of hope into them on 2025, 2026 LNG exports. So if the stocks would have followed the commodity, I would own a lot more nat gas stocks. But I think nat gas is looking more interesting. The commodity is down and out. We had a, a, a warm winter. That's less to over oversupply. So nat gas, I'm interested on oil, you know, let me pivot to a little bit of a, you know, kind of a climate comment or energy security comment. Look what happened with OPEC, right, this week, right? We're still at the mercy of kind of these these countries. And I think it just, there's not enough Canada, not enough U.S. in the world to counter that. And that what I mean by that, by energy producing and, you know, exporting and and kind of friendly as a general comment. So um, I think what's happening with OPEC and the supply side you know, I think it's just pushing more and more people to, hey, what can we do on national security to control our own destiny? And that, and one of the solution is renewables. You know, I've been reading this. I'm reading a book right now. It's a little dry, but I'm reading a book of the Allied invasion in North Africa in 1942 and 1943, and it's coinciding with six weeks. My grandfather. That was, that was my grandfather. That was my grandfather. That was, that was, that. Yeah. yeah. So what? But it's coinciding with. Um, you know, oil um, rationing uh, in North America, right? So I think nobody wants to go back there, and I think we have alternatives. Um, so I, I'm also interested in alternatives. And alternatives means a bunch of different things, but, right? It might mean nuclear and everything else. But on the energy side, definitely more interested in that gas. It, it's definitely been down and out. And also interested in all form of energy with, or energy-intensive uh, economy. What can we do? And there's just a bunch of alternatives, and we're, I'm looking at that. When looking at a new company, how long do you analyze that company before you buy? I want to get your comments on the private market as well. But but first, you know, how long? How, how do you take a look at things? What's your analysis process? That's a good question. Sometimes I try to be really quick. I try to say no quickly. Let me put it that way. <laughs> you know, sometimes we'll analyze a company over 30 minutes, an hour meeting, and we'll just pass because there's some stuff we don't like. Sometimes it's a balance sheet. Sometimes it's a mousetrap. Like there's... As much as I say I like being a contrarian investor, I try to do contrarian investing in good business models. So one thing we try to do initially in the, those first 30, 30, 60 minutes, we, tr we try to do some pre-work. Obviously, we're talking to the company. We're trying to get, is this a good business or not? And sometimes, you know, the companies are always presenting you good facts. And sometimes you have to scratch the surface to realize. And because I, as a general comment, I'd rather own good businesses because time is more your friend. So I would say that we tend to say no quickly. So there's a lot of stuff we, we just pass. Um, not for me, not for me. Ugh, you know, no, not interesting. And so that's the initial filter. Uh, then I would say the companies that do pass the initial filter, even though we might not own them, then we try to always, you know, keep them top of mind because they're good businesses. Like, for example, there's all, there's probably like 
five or 10 consumer discretionary names right now I have in my head that I would love to own, but I don't want to own them now because they're too expensive. They're not contrarian enough. But if we have a big consumer discussion, I'm going to own some paint companies. I'm going to own some flooring distributors that are just really good mousetrap with high returns. It's just right now, they're just outside of that contrarian price range. So those companies, we try to we try to always keep them and know them and sometimes analyze them, frankly, for years. That was the case with me with Five Below. Until something happens that because when they hit your price point, sometimes it, it's really brief. You have sometimes just days or weeks, sometimes even hours at extremes to um, to buy them and uh, to react. So those, those the, the good businesses, we try to keep top of mind, talk to them every quarter. Uh, we because if something happens and they hit a right price, we want to be able to react quickly. And I can give you so so many examples. You know, good retailers like Sleep Country or Five Below during COVID. Kushtal, when it was announced that uh, they were looking at Carrefour as an acquisition, the stock got whacked. I mean, there's always these things that happen, and you want to be able to react quickly because the velocity of of decision making in the market's fast. Uh, so for the good businesses, you want to know them because then when something happens, I can check with the analysts. Hey, let's revisit quickly. We want to. You said we should buy that 85, right? Or um, you know whatever. Uh, it's 80. It's 84. Uh, let's revisit quickly because maybe we should buy this and start buying in the fund. So for that, we want to react quickly. We want to be up to speed on our companies. So there's a great follow-on question to that actually here. So looking at your holdings, Hugo, some exposures are very small while others are larger. What is the rationale behind the very small exposures? Does it give you a chance to get to know a holding better? Yes, that's a good question. I, I sometimes get a little bit of flack that, you know, you have 100 companies in Greater Canada, you know, I wish I could pay just for your best 50. And it's a fair comment. It's just I've always run the funds with kind of 75 to 100-ish uh, names and I like to have my top 10, top 20 concentrated. You know, that's where the top 10, top 20, top 30, a lot of returns are going to come there. I do sometimes have initial uh, positions, you know, you're starting to lean in. Sometimes you make mistakes, right? You're trying to get rid of stuff uh, that might linger on. Sometimes you really make mistakes and it, it, it's got upside down and you're going to have that line in your fund forever, but nobody will buy it because it's bankrupt. But like, as Joel Pinlass once told me, if you don't have any bankruptcies, you're not trying hard enough. You know, so there's going to be some bottom, you know, 10 or 15 names that are, are kind of completely irrelevant. But sometimes they're legacy. Sometimes we're trying to exit. Sometimes we're trying to we're starting to build a position. But what's important for me is 10, 15, 20, 30 names are really kind of driving the portfolio. They're high conviction. They're big bets. And that's what I'm trying to do in, in the fund. Is dividend paying stocks, is it, you know, is that part of a strategy? Does that just kind of happen sometimes? Um, are they important to how you look at companies, the dividend? Uh, dividend specifically, no. I would say uh, capital return, yes. Uh, capital allocation as a general comment. I think that's one thing that as I've been at Fidelity 21 years, um, I focus more and more and more on is there's a lot of companies, management teams are incredible at running their business. Unfortunately, some of them sometimes are really poor at allocating capital. And I think nowadays, I think allocating capital is as important, sometimes even for some business model, even more important than actually running the business. So we, we focus really, really hard on that. And uh, we, we, we use a, just a lot of brain cells on capital allocation, We're trying to understand the company, trying to understand the motivation of the management team, right? So that's really important. That's one thing. We've been, I've been really pushing internally the last six months, a year. How, how is management team compensated? Because that will drive behavior. 
some companies or the management teams are compensated, it seems, for just running a bigger business, more EBITDA. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, great shareholder returns. And sometimes it might be detrimental to shareholder returns. So we really focus on proxy, how management teams are compensated, what are what are they doing on a capital allocation? And I would include obviously just dividends as part of that capital allocation decision. It can be MA, can be buyback, can be paying off debt, can be dividends, uh, can be obviously reinvesting in your business. Um, so that's just part of that conversation. So maybe also related to that conversation and you know how management is managing, part of that is is how the compensation is working. But do you find there are some companies out there that um, are just good businesses and, and are run well, but are also good on the climate side. I mean, I'm sure it's not an accident, but it's it's maybe not what they're known for. Yeah, so as a general comment, we want good businesses that are just at extremes that things sound bad. And I'm not sure it's at a full extreme, but when we talk about the climate side, you know, for climate leadership, I'm trying to look at three circles. Good fundamental business historically, Contrarian opportunity, something's going wrong right now, but it's not fatal or permanent. And another circle of climate tailwind. And, you know, when those three circles intersect in that Venn diagram, I don't want to miss those for the climate leadership. I'm really, really, really focused on that. And I tell the, the analysts to think about me that way. So, you know, I think U.S. transportation, which I've been talking about, you know, meets that goal. Like they're out of favor because they, you know, they're in a recession. Fundamentally, they're good businesses. They have a climate tailwind because they're carbon winners, 75% less carbon than, say, trucking. But sometimes we find some neat little business like um, Computer Modeling Group, King Company. It's in my top 10 for climate leadership. Historically, an oil gas reservoir uh, simulation uh, business, nice little business, um, software. Contrarian that most people, including ourselves, have kind of forgotten about it. Now there's new management team. Uh, there's new board members who actually come from Constellation Software. And now what's happening is I think they're up to 13% now of their revenues. They're growing this this renewable side of their business, carbon capture, geothermal, hydrogen. So now there's an extra tailwind that's climate to an existing business. So, you know, when we can find those special situations, they're candidates for all the funds, obviously, but they're also especially candidates for uh, climate leadership. So that's how I think about running that product. That's fantastic. And just a final kind of word for investors who are, you know, looking at markets, listening to what you're saying. What would you just want them to kind of have, you know, in the back of their mind about how you manage and, and what's going on? Yeah, a little bit like a panel I said at Vision 2023, you know, last year was a historical bad year, right? To see bond returns and equity returns be so negative correlated the same way. So we didn't want to enter this year being like super duper negative. And that's played out to a certain degree, right? Equity returns are, are up year to date. So we'll see where we finish the year. I think, you know, cost of capital has changed. So that's really important when we're discussing with our companies. The free money train has left the station. That's way gone. So we're, you know, we're talking to our companies a little bit differently. And I'm just trying to get ahead, look with my country and style, one little step at a time, right? One little battle at a time, no big macro calls, you know, sector wins and individual stock wins one at a time. And, you know, year to date, I've worked on U.S. transportation. I've talked about that. I've worked on financials who've got really out of favor, you know, since March. I'm leaning into the alternative managers, private equity managers, less so banks, but more different differentiated financials, gaming stocks like um, um, video gaming stocks. You know, that, there was a big option there in January. 
Uh, right now, it's about, you know, maybe letting go of some of the big winners year to date. So there's always these little things. The fund's always in, 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 in movement. Um, and that's why we, how we try to get ahead and want to keep doing the same thing. One little battle, ensure and battle at a time to get ahead. And a lot of these small wins hopefully lead us to the strong returns by the end of the year. Oh, it's great to see you. Thanks so much, Hugo. Great to, great to spend time with you and uh, have you join everyone here. Thank you, Pamela. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.